You know, we're starting a brand new sermon series today, and the way we prepare for these is months in advance, we begin to consider, we begin to pray, we begin to just ask God, what would you have us go through in a certain season? And we've been going through the book of Acts, as you know, we spent eight weeks in that. In November, we dipped our toe into a sermon series on gratitude, and now we're going to move into an Advent sermon series that actually is different than a traditional Advent series. You know, many traditional Advent series will take a look at the the birth of Christ, will follow uh, the life of, um, you know, those first followers of Jesus as they considered the the birth of our Savior. What we want to do is we want to consider something that is desperately needed right now in our church. And I'm going to guess that it's desperately needed in our cities, in our nation, and around the globe. The whole thesis of the next five weeks is this. The velocity of your life is in direct proportion to what you value most. The velocity of your life is in direct proportion to what you value most. I want you to consider your own life for a second. Tune me out and go inward. If one word could describe the velocity of your life right now, the beginning of the Christmas season, just after Black Friday, just after hosting family or friends or visiting family or friends, the last month of the last year of this decade before we go to 2020, what word would define the velocity of your life? Think about that for a moment. Boil it down to one word. Do that inner work right now in this moment. Statistics tell us that right now in America that the majority of us would use a word very similar to the word hurry. I had about three people walk out in the 9 o'clock service and they said, my word was hectic. Anybody have hectic? Any? How many of you had the word rushed? How many actually had the word hurry? Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. You know why that's perfect? You have no idea how sick you are. I mean that. It's not to be funny. We are in a culture of hurry. And we don't even know it. And I'm going to invite you to move at a different speed this December. And my hope and my prayer, my task, as it were, is simply to lay out some scripture, to lay out the life of Jesus, and hopefully you will see at the end of December that the velocity of your life is hurry and how desperately you need to move at the speed of light. And when I say the speed of light, I'm not talking about moving faster. I'm talking about moving at the speed of the light of the world, the speed of Jesus. You see, the majority of us, we move at the speed of might, our strength, our power, our abilities. And we are caught up in this loop within culture that if you do more, if you accomplish more, if you have more followers, if you have a a bigger portfolio, a better resume, more on your LinkedIn profile, that you're more accomplished. And so hurry is in 
slow us out. When you think about it, slow is a, is a negative word. It's a pejorative word. I know it's completely politically incorrect. We don't say this anymore. But there was a time where we used to refer to people who uh, had a lower IQ or who had uh, reduced mental or emotional or cognitive abilities. We referred to them as, you said it. I didn't say it. I mean, it's become politically incorrect these days. Uh, you know, if we're in a, if we're in a restaurant and our, and our water is empty, we would describe the service as? We might consider getting up out of a movie if we're bored because the movie is? In fact, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines slow as this. Where is it? That's one thing that I'm doing differently this sermon series. I'm using notes. How many of you have ever seen me preach from a manuscript? What is a manuscript, right? I have one here, and that's what's throwing me off. I'll find it later. Here it is. Merriam-Webster says this. Mentally dull. Stupid. Naturally inert or sluggish. Lacking in readiness, promptness, or willingness. Corey Tenboom once said that the devil can't make you sin. He'll just make you busy. Carl Jung said, you know, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. It reminds me of something I heard John Ortberg say. I was on the campus of Florida Seminary. Many of you might know John Ortberg. He's a pastor up at Menlo uh, Church up in the Bay Area. He's written many, many books. And I heard him lecture at Fuller Seminary. And he recounted a conversation he had over the phone with Dallas Willard, this, this great, great thinker. I wish I took a class with Dallas Willard when I was at the University of Southern California. He was a teacher of philosophy. And all my Christian friends were like, you've got to take a class with Dallas Willard. I never did. He had a conversation with Dallas over the phone. He writes about this in one of his books, The Me I Want to Be. He writes about it in another book called Soul Keeping. In fact, this conversation is recounted in a, a new book that was just published by a, a great pastor and thinker and author by the name of Jean-Marc Comer. There's a book that he wrote, and the title of that book comes from this conversation. The conversation goes like this. John calls up Dallas, and he says, Dallas, what are some things that I need to do to be the me that I want to be, you know, the me that God wants me to be. What do I need to do to thrive? Silence. And then finally Dallas says, you need to relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So John's writing it down. <laughs> That's good, okay. That's good. What's next? Silence. Dallas finally says, there is nothing else, John. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Wooden, one of the greatest coaches of all time, UCLA, said to his players, be quick, but never hurry. It's always been bad, but it's gotten worse. Did you know before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, Americans slept for 11 hours a day? 
How many of you wish you had more time in your day? Look around the room. How many of you, yes, would wish you had more time in your day? Well, the average American now sleeps seven hours a day. We now have four more hours of our life per day. Add that up to a week, to a month, to a year, to a lifetime. We figured out how to have more hours of our day. Are we less hurried? Are we less frantic? Are we less distracted by the things? Or or are we closer to God? No. Maybe some of you uh, have heard about this. There was a subcommittee for the Senate in 1967 that actually did a study that calculated by the year 1985 that we as Americans would work on average 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. And the biggest problem faced by Americans, this subcommittee said, was we wouldn't know how to do, we wouldn't know what to do with all of our leisure time. Today, we work four more hours, four more weeks a year. Not hours, four more weeks a year than we did in 1979. Even this morning, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to turn off all the notifications on my phone. I thought I had it dialed. But one popped up this morning, so I missed Wired Magazine somehow. It got through the cracks. And, and this thing popped up, and the author is advocating for us to move from an eight-hour-a-day uh, workday to a five-hour-a-day. and make, makes the case that we would, we would live healthy. How many of you wish that we could move from eight hours to five hours? How many of you wish we could move from 12 hours to eight hours, right? <laughs> now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. What are we going to do with that extra time? Well, it's a good thing we've got time-saving devices like this, right? (laughs) You know, a recent study came out that says that you and I, on average, touch this thing 2,617 times a day. And some of you are like, no. Well, statistically, you millennials touch it twice as much. (laughs) Do you know on your iPhone there's this thing called screen time? Do you know this? Swipe to the right, keep going, go down, go to screen time. It will tell me how many times I, touched my, I picked up my phone, how many times I got alerted, how many minutes, how many hours I spent on this thing. Let's go to Thanksgiving. Can I just be vulnerable with you? Well, thank you very much. Okay. Gosh. For some reason, it's not going back. Nope, here we go. Thanksgiving, time with family in Texas. Should have been time. I should have been present. Let's talk about Thursday. Nine hours and 49 minutes. Nine hours and 49 minutes on Thanksgiving. I picked up my phone 169 times, it says. I received 105 notifications. That was too much? That's too much. How many of you would say that's too much? What is my problem? I wasn't cooking. (laughs) Yes. It's good. Well played. Well played. Did you know that Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, recently said this about social media. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. 
the thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and your conscience attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with. Because we're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. You know the like button on social media? is based off of the same psychology that is used for slot machines, which is the same psychology that was developed out of a study in the mid-20th century on the infrequency of feeding pigeons. Have you heard this before? You feed a pigeon. You feed a pigeon on a schedule. They get used to that schedule. Their levels of anxiety stay low. Their coming back to the spot where they are fed typically begin to follow a scheduled pattern. But if you feed that pigeon infrequently, a little here, a little there, anxiety goes up. All of a sudden, that pigeon will go back to the spot where it is fed over and over and over not knowing when that next feeding will happen. And they'll begin to peck and peck and peck and peck and peck and peck and peck, peck, waiting for that next hit. That's the psychology that is in your pocket. We are desperately in need of moving at a different velocity. Desperately in need. And there's this huge movement right now in pop culture, it's, it's a movement of mindfulness. How many of you have seen a magazine or a book or heard something that had anything to do with mindfulness? Let's just see. Let's be, okay. Mindfulness is all of what this talks about, but it removes Jesus. Mindfulness is what culture is saying we desperately need. Yes! But unless it's mindfulness on things that are true... Revealed by God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we will continue to move in a velocity of life that is marked by hurry. And it's eating us from the inside out. And the level of anxiety is going up. The level of depression is going up. The level of isolation is going up. We are binge watching, binge scrolling. We're pigeons pecking away. And culture is saying, slow down. That's not what I'm here to tell you. I believe scripture is calling all of us to begin to move at the speed of light. For some of us, that is to slow down. For some of us, that means speeding up. For us, that means taking a Sabbath. It's developing practices of silence, of solitude, of simplicity. In fact, what we're going to do over the five Sundays in December, I'm going to take a look at five different spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that we can begin to incorporate in our life to change gears, to move from a, a speed of might where it's all of our energy, all of our strength, all of our stuff, 
to a walking with Jesus moment by moment, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that we can be present with God throughout the day, in a way that we can be present with one another. How many of you, show of hands, miss the fact that there is snow right now on those mountains, on the drive here? How many of you miss that driving in? May I suggest that you're moving too fast? How many of you would say that at some point in 2019, you had to make a decision and you felt rushed in making that decision? How many of you would say that you reacted to a child in your family, a spouse, a roommate, a friend or coworker in such a way that you realized you reacted because you were in such a rush and they kind of got in your way for that moment? Oh, I thought none of you had the velocity of hurry. It's like carbon monoxide. You don't know it's there. And yet it's killing us. Freshman year of college, I was driving a really fast car, a 1984 Volvo. <laughs> My first car I ever owned, freshman year. College, I'm driving it down from Big Bear Lake. It's in the wintertime. I'd gone snowboarding and skiing with some friends of ours. And at the time of my life, I, I, I like to drive fast, as fast as you can in a 1984 Volvo. And so for some, I had nowhere to go. It was the end of the day, had an amazing day up on the slopes. There was five of us in the car, I'm driving. And going down the winding, I know my parents are watching online, they're out of town, they know this story, forgive me, you know. I would try to pass as many cars as possible. <laughs> I was the person that had to find the shortest line at the red light. Nobody else does that, do they? At the grocery store, I'm always going to the shortest line. I'm constantly checking the UPS tracking. None of you do that, do you? No? Got a little quiet right there. I'm driving down from Big Bear, and I've got the car loaded up with people, the car loaded up with gear. And because I'm flying past all these cars, and I know every single turn, my parents have a place up there, so I've, I've done it so many times, I knew exactly how late you could wait to break before you got every turn because I knew how sharp the turns were. So I didn't know this at the time, but apparently in older vehicles, you can begin to heat up the brake fluid. Didn't know that. Didn't know it was a hydraulic system. Didn't really realize that as you heat something up, the viscosity becomes thinner. Didn't really realize that when I finally get the last straightaway. It's a three-quarter mile, some of you know this. It's a two-lane. It's the last section where you can pass like 10 cars before you get that last big left-hand turn where it goes down to one lane. And I'm just flying past all the cars in an 84 Volvo. And as I go to put on the brakes all the way to the bottom, I want you to imagine what that feels like. I was going 75. I've waited to the last second to break. Because you know, you wait to the last second and get past three more cars. And when I go to put on the brakes, it hits the floor because there's no hydraulic power in the brake fluid. It overheated. Right to the floor. And smart me, in loading up the car, had loaded all the skis, all the snowboards on top of the emergency brake. Because I'm thinking, I'm not going to park on a hill while I'm driving home. I don't need my e-brake. I mean, it was a miracle that I survived that. I don't know how. It was so weighted down. There was all this weight. I was able, just reactionary, to grab 
the e-brake and pull it up and literally lift all those. It woke up everybody in the car. It slowed me down long enough to screech around the corner. I've got no brakes. I've got to get down to the bottom of the hill. So now I finally limp my way down using the e-brake, and for a month, every time I put on the brakes, I had this PTSD emotional response thinking my foot was going to hit the floor. That's a perfect word picture for my life today. It still is. I've tried inbox zero. I go to my emails right now. How am I doing, Drew, with inbox zero? Well, I've got four different email accounts. A lot of it is spam, but I'm at 24,278 unopened emails. My Bel Air account, 5,367 unopened emails. I flagged 2,825 of them to respond to. I move it at the speed of might in my own strength. I'm not in tune with the Holy Spirit in my life. We've just moved through one of the most miraculous seasons that I've ever experienced as part of this church, and we're too busy planning the next thing. We're not slowing down enough to tell the stories of what God is doing, to see what God is doing, to join God in what God is doing. We desperately need, and it's not just slowing down. Some of us, we need to speed up. We'll talk about that in the last Sunday of December. What we are going to talk about right now is silence and solitude. And we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. I'm going to lump these two spiritual practices together. And I want us to begin to just consider what it would look like for us to begin moving on pace with Jesus. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. I'm going to be short and sweet here. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 and 39. It's on page 812 in your pew Bibles. If you're joining us, many of you who do online, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, and it says this. In the morning... While it was still very dark, he, this is Jesus, got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on in the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. So keep those Bibles open. Take a look. There's two words there in verse 35. He went out to a deserted place. The Greek word language of the New Testament is one word. It's translated in many different ways. The Greek word is eramos. Eramos. Can I hear you say eramos? Here it's translated as deserted place. Sometimes it's referred to as the desert or the wilderness. Sometimes it's referred to as the lonely place or the quiet place. This is God in the flesh that has existed for all of eternity. Who perhaps had more 
demands on his time than anyone else, who never seemed hurried, who never seemed rushed, who in some instances moved quickly and swiftly and of course intentionally, but never was rushed. And one of the reasons why is he had this pattern, this rhythm, this movement of his life that every single day began in the quiet place, in the deserted place, in the desert, in the wilderness, in silence and solitude. Cal Newport, how many of you have heard of Cal Newport has written a lot of books, amazing. He writes a, a, a book called Deep Work. He basically says that right now it's the first time in human history that people in the West are living lives absent of solitude. It's never existed before. I mean, I forgot what it was like when I was on this flight yesterday coming from Dallas, what it was like to be bored on an airplane. I'm literally there. I'm, I'm doing emails. I'm doing texts. Uh, you know, I'm prepping for this. I'm finishing a book. Uh, I've got a football game going on. Sorry, Michigan. That was rough loss. Um, and I'm looking at all these screens. Cal Newport describes solitude as being alone with your thoughts. When was the last time you were alone with your thoughts? No NPR, no podcast, no Fox News, no, no whatever it might be. Scripture describes solitude as being alone with God. And Jesus constantly withdrew to the Aramas every single day. And what's fascinating here is it says this. While it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. This is before everybody else got up. And it later goes on to say that after this day, he then invites his disciples to withdraw to a lonely place. And as they withdraw to a lonely place, the crowds begin to follow. And as the crowds begin to follow, the crowds eventually begin to catch up to him and the disciples. And that's where there's that famous scene where thousands of people are hungry and Jesus multiplies uh, fish and loaves. And so he's trying to set aside time. He's trying to enter silence and solitude. He's trying to have a quiet time. And the crowds just keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. And the end of that story is that finally Jesus, at the end of that day, after trying to have a quiet time, trying to have silence, trying to have solitude, finally withdraws in the middle of the night to be with God. There's this pattern. As Jesus gets busier, he spends more time in silence and solitude. In my life, the more I get busy, the less time I spend in silence and solitude. I'm entering the month of December. 27 of my 31 nights are accounted for in the month of December. If I approach it like I typically approach it, I'm going to be burnt out January 1. Or... I can approach this season at the speed of light. I can choose to get back into the rhythm that I used to have, getting up early before my kids, not going to my emails, 
not going to all these other things. And being silent before God. And it doesn't mean I have to go out to the wilderness. It could be in my family room on the couch. Sometimes my two-year-old wakes up way earlier than we plan. Maybe I leave 15 minutes earlier on the drive up here. When I pull over at the edge of Dirt Mulholland and I'm quiet before God. I enter into the Aramos. For so long, I thought the wilderness place, the quiet place, the deserted place was a place of weakness. This great book that I referenced a moment ago, John Mark Comer just released it. It's called The Relentless Elimination of Hurry. It's right now number one on Amazon and in Christian living and discipleship. I know some of you are, are, have just read it or reading it. And he said, it's fascinating to think that the Eremos, the lonely place, a place of solitude, a place with God is actually a place of strength. And he goes on to say in this book that when you consider the fact that right after the baptism of Jesus, after he publicly receives his identity, it says the Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness, out into the Eremos, where he prays and fasts for 40 days. And John Mark Comer, the author, says, you know, growing up, he used to think, well, that's so like Satan, to get you when you're vulnerable. I mean, out in the desert, you're vulnerable. Out in the wilderness, you're vulnerable. You haven't eaten, you're vulnerable. You're without community, you're vulnerable. And he said, so brilliant, the more I, more I read Christian authors and thinkers and theologians throughout the millennia, I begin to realize that Actually, that place where Jesus was alone with God was the strongest place he could be. That if he was going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan, he needed 40 days, a month and a half, alone, fasting, dependent upon God, in prayer with God alone, not distracted, not hurried, not rushed, but with God and God alone. And then and only then could he go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan and stand his ground in his firm identity as the Son of God. And he goes on to say, wouldn't you much rather go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the hard things of life, with the enemy of God, after spending all this alone time with God? Wouldn't that be much better than after a long holiday weekend where you finally put the last dish away? I mean, wouldn't it be better having spent all this time with God rather than after a, a Netflix binge? Wouldn't it be better to spend all this alone time with God to then have a difficult thing to do rather than after an 80-hour work week? The practice of silence and solitude is the first step in transitioning to a life moved at the speed of light. When you begin each day with God in prayer, in God's Word, every single day, you are making a choice that the velocity of your life now is in sync with what you value most, God, in a relationship with God. I want you to hear some of these quotes. I love these. St. Augustine said that entering into silence is entering into joy. St. John Climacus, he was a 6th century Syrian monk who spent most of his life praying on the top of Mount Sinai. 
He said, the friend of silence draws near to God. How many of you, honestly, would say that right now, you are experiencing a deep, rich relationship with God because you have a pattern of silence and solitude built into the daily rhythms of your life. Put your hands up. Look around the room. This is awesome. Put those hands up one more time. Be proud of that. That's worth p being proud of. I would love for you, for those of us that don't have our hands up, it's bold, it's courageous, to walk up to some of those individuals and say, Help me understand, how are you doing that? What does that look like in your life? What if the conversations of our lives actually propelled us more to a velocity of Jesus, moving at the speed of Jesus, rather than the speed that our culture is going on? So much of our conversations go to that. So much of our time spent goes to that. Talking about things, focusing on things, valuing things that, that don't have eternal value. What would it look like for us to enter into conversation with those in our life and say, how can I move at the speed of Jesus? How are you moving at the speed of Jesus? What does that even mean to move at the speed of Jesus? Didn't he just live 2,000 years ago? Yes, he did, but he also lives now. And you are the body of Christ. And if you are the body of Christ, then that body should never move in a hurried way. That body should always make time to be present with God, with one another. That body should be able to live with intention and purpose and joy and peace. That there can be margin in the body's life to respond to moves of the Holy Spirit. That we're not burnt out, that we're not overwhelmed, that we're not overburdened, that our life doesn't look like a 1984 Volvo loaded up without brakes. So I'm choosing in this December, every single day, and I want you to hold me accountable and I'm going to say it in a public way, and I'm going to begin to share this with my life group and close friends in my life, I want to begin every single day in silence and solitude. I need that. My family needs that for me. My kids need that for me. This church, you need that for me. And it's not about slowing down. In some ways, I need to speed up. In other ways, I need to slow down. The point is, this is moving at the speed of Jesus. It's being sensitive to the Spirit's leading in my life. It's starting off every day saying, God, where are you going to be at work? How can I join you? Who and what do you need me to be present to? What is distracting me? I've now set a limit on my phone. I figured it out. So now when I open it up, it says, you've reached your limit. That happens so quick every day. 
I've turned it to grayscale mode. You familiar with this? Psychologically, when I look at this phone now, I'm not drawn to it. At a neurological level, I'm beginning to turn this off and putting it away in another room. I don't want to be the pigeon pecking away. I took social media off my phone back in the spring, filled it with other stuff. <laughs> my neighbors invited me to play fantasy football. Lordy, lordy, lordy. <laughs> Can any of you relate to this? Maybe just a little. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you the ways in which the rhythm of your life is not moving at the speed of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit would reveal those things in such a way that you would be able to see it for what it is. That you would long for a life that Jesus describes as life to the full. That you would be able to repent, which means to turn and face the life that Jesus wants you to live. And to know that you don't do this in your own strength. It's not the speed of might times two. No, this is the speed of light. This is the Holy Spirit living in and through you. This is Jesus living in and through you. This is us being the body of Christ. And we can only do that when us individually makes a commitment, makes a decision. I've got to change. Jesus, lead me. Jesus, guide me. Change the velocity of my life because you, God, matter most. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have come to offer a life and you describe that life as life to the full. And God, we know that life is just a collection of all the choices, all the decisions, all of our habits, all of our experiences. It's the summation of the way we live our life. Jesus, I thank you that you are the way to life everlasting and life to the full now. May we long for you to live in and through us in a way that is so far beyond sustainable that it is life-giving for us and for those around us. May we be people that move at your pace, Jesus. May the world around us take notice. May they long to move with you, Jesus. May we be, as you describe us, the light of the world, moving at your pace. In Jesus' name we pray. We say together, amen.